You're listening to Wake Up Call with Christina Previtt. I'm the CEO and co-owner of New Jersey Divorce Solutions, a law firm located in Edison, New Jersey. I've been practicing exclusively divorce and family law for the past 16 years. Everyone has a story. I interview them. Wake Up Call is an opportunity for you to hear inspiring stories from people who are making hard decisions, overcoming their fears, and living their most authentic life. Today is a special episode of the Hashtag FemSquire series, where I interview incredible women attorneys and business owners about their career evolution and experience as an entrepreneur. My guest today is Remy Spencer. Remy is a former prosecutor who is now a criminal defense attorney with a private practice in West Orange, New Jersey. Remy tells us about her experience as a prosecutor, hear how that was abruptly cut short by a once-in-a-lifetime business opportunity to open her own firm with a big whale of a client. Remy shares her war stories of being a prosecutor and a criminal defense attorney. We talk about such things as the wisdom or not of an eye for an I hear Remy's opinion, her impressions of the Harvey Weinstein trial and the hashtag Me Too movement, and whether what we see in the media today is really representative of the criminal justice system. You don't want to miss this. Welcome, Remy. Thank you, Christina. It's so great to be with you. Thank you. Likewise. So I start every interview out with the same question. Where did you go to college and what did you think you were going to be when you grew up? I went to Boston College. And I wanted to be a Broadway musical star and had zero talent. So I pursued a education in uh, pre-law and political science. I How knew- do you know that you had no talent in Broadway? <laughs> Enough people would hear me sing in a car or in the house and tell me to stop singing. <laughs> so that was good enough, clear enough for me. Okay. Okay. So what was your major? I was in English and pre-law, political science, dual major at Boston College. So how did you figure out then that you wanted to be a lawyer? Well, I wasn't sure I wanted to be a lawyer, but I was certain I wanted to get um, a law degree. I wanted the education because I thought that the skill set you get from a law school education would be applicable in a number of different fields. But as I was in law school, I really fell in love with the idea of helping individuals and representing people in ways that could positively impact their lives in a real way. And that's why I became a criminal lawyer. So what did your parents do? Were you the first one to go to college in your family? Not the first one to go to college, but the first one to become a lawyer. I come from a family of doctors and surgeons and people who work in the healthcare industry. My mother owns and runs a medical billing company. My father was a general surgeon. My twin brother is a physician. And so it's a big medical family. And when I was graduating from law school, my father made me promise that whatever I wanted to do was fine, so long as I didn't defend insurance companies. Did it ever occur to you to go to med school? No, no, no. My own blood will make me pass out. So that wasn't an option. Okay. So you became a lawyer. Did you have any idea what kind of work that you wanted to do? When I started law school, I thought maybe I would go into entertainment law. I was still sort of attracted to the idea of working in the Broadway world. I thought somehow maybe someone would discover my talent if I was an entertainment lawyer. And then I understood quickly what it meant to be an entertainment lawyer. And it was mostly transactional and drafting contracts and negotiating salaries. And that wasn't something that appealed to me. So I learned that um, through a moot court competition, one of my stronger skills in law school was oral advocacy, and, um, and I loved it. It didn't seem like work. It seemed like fun. So trial law was the direction I pursued. Well, you are sort of performing, just not singing. That's right. That's right. <laughs> so I guess you sort of found your thing. <laughs> I guess so, yes. And where did you go to law school? I went to Seton Hall Law School here in New- Newark, New Jersey. Did you do any clinics or anything while you were in law school? Yes, I was very active in the law school when I was there. I was the president of our trial advocacy. I don't remember what they were. It was called ATLA at the time. I'm not sure what they're called now. The Trial Lawyers Association. That's right. I was the president of that chapter at our law school. I was involved in the moot court program. I won the competition, and then I was mentoring other students. I traveled throughout the country arguing moot court competitions for Seton Hall Law School. 
and um, I did a a clinic that was a, geared around appellate advocacy, and we prepared a brief a brief for an asylum application to the Third Circuit. That's awesome. I know so many people from law school that were absolutely terrified of public speaking. And first year, when we had to do moot court, it was mandatory. They had so much stress and anxiety around that. So that's interesting that you really gravitated towards that. Yeah, it was it was a surprise to me because I'm a natural introvert. I'm not um, someone who goes to an event and is the center of attention. I usually am on the outskirts talking to the one person that I know. Yeah. And um, But when we had that moot court competition, we hadn't even been involved in the appellate advocacy class yet. So we hadn't even learned how to do it. And for for some reason, I stood up and started talking, and I could do it. So it was a surprise, and it was a lot of fun. And when you're when you're enjoying something, yeah. you can really get better at it. What did you end up doing right out of law school? Out of law school, um, I went to uh, a big firm in New Jersey, uh, Wilentz, Goldman, and Spitzer. I've heard of them. I did my summer associate um, job with them after my second year in law school and was really impressed with the the caliber of the lawyers, the character of the people, um, the support that they offered to young lawyers, and the um, opportunities that were available. And I also had the great privilege of working with uh, now Justice Barry Albin, who sits on the New Jersey Supreme Court. Before he um, elevated to the bench, he ran the criminal department at that firm and was a tremendous uh, mentor and teacher to me in the time that I got to work with him. Can you share some of the highlights of what you learned from him that you still take away today? Yes. I learned that despite the stress and difficulties of practicing criminal law, that it is important to maintain a sense of humor and a sense of balance. And even though we'd be in his office working late into the evening or on Saturdays, he still sent, seemed to find a way to create real balance in his life, and I really admired that. He also taught me the value, or maybe reinforced what I already learned, the value of powerful writing, legal writing. And then I spent about a year and a half there after I graduated um, from law school. I learned, I learned so many things. Um, I think that the, the most important thing personally that I learned um, was that you really have to care about the work that you're doing if you want to be the best at it. You really have to be passionate and invested in the kind of law that you're practicing. And for me, I was working on a team that was um, focused on commercial litigation, and we were um, doing great work. The lawyers there do top-notch work for important cases, important clients, but for me, it was too far astray from the goal that I had, uh, which was to help individuals. And representing clients that were big corporations was not something that I was willing to give up all my nights and weekends and holidays for. Yeah. And um, I transitioned from that practice to the Union County Prosecutor's Office and was an assistant prosecutor there for a couple of years before opening this firm. And I will tell anybody this. The prosecutor's job was by far and away the best job I have ever had. And how long were you there? Um, only a couple of years before the opportunity to open this firm came up, um, but it was it was wonderful. I worked under the best leader. Um, Ted Romanko was the prosecutor in Union County at the time, and he gave me the flexibility and the independence to do a whole range of cases. I focused most of my time on domestic violence cases, but because I had some experience before I came to the prosecutor's office, I was given the opportunity to try cases. So basically when more senior prosecutors were going on vacation or had maternity leave, rather than adjourning their case that was scheduled for trial, if I wanted it, I was allowed to take the file and run with it. And that's how I managed to get a lot of experience in a short period of time I was surrounded by the most um, supportive team of lawyers and detectives. It really is an incredible job to be an assistant prosecutor in the state of New Jersey because you get to do the righteous good work that prosecutors need to do, and you get to do it with the support and the education that 
um, a big county prosecutor's office will allow. You've got to do trial work right away, right? That's right. Because I know in private practice, especially at larger firms, you don't always get to go to court right away. My very first jury trial was a first-degree armed robbery case. And, that sounds uh, big. <laughs> it was. It was very big, and it was very exciting, and it was quite a thrill. That's awesome. So I love that you came at all of this new stuff with confidence. Well, it seems like you did. I think it's important to be confident. Um, I work very, very hard. I was, I think, fear of failure, fear of not succeeding and making a mistake that would change the outcome of the case is what kept me working through the night and making sure that despite my lack of trial experience or criminal experience, that I could do the very best job that was required. Did you have co-counsel? On so the, it was just you. On the jury trial, yes. I okay. had a tremendous lawyer, Scott Peterson. I, I think he's still there at the Union County Prosecutor's Office. He is a more senior member there. And um, one of the nicest people, one of the best prosecutors in that office, sat second chair and um, really gave me the, the confidence that I could do it. Because all I'm thinking, as a family law attorney, I've never had a jury trial. I'm thinking, how did you know how to pick a jury? How did you even know what the process was like? And that's not even the trial. You haven't even gotten to the trial yet. That's a great question. And it's actually a funny story, because I, was, I sat through seminars. I sat through classes that senior prosecutors taught. I watched some really great lawyers try cases. And any lawyer who does litigation knows you don't sit through an entire trial. You go in, you see maybe three or four hours of something that's happening. But you, if you're practicing, you really can't sit through somebody else's trial from start to finish. But I had managed to see all different parts of the trial, and I felt ready, and I worked so hard. And then they brought in a panel of 100 people for jury selection. And it occurred to me in that very moment the one thing I had never seen was jury selection, and I was terrified. Um, and in New Jersey, the lawyers really don't have the authority to do much, so it's probably the easiest part yeah. of the trial, but that was the most nerve-wracking part. Um, but, you know, you learn on your feet, and that's the, the beautiful thing about working for a prosecutor's office or a public defender's office, because there are people there that you can lean on for support. and. The truth is, in a criminal case, it's important to everyone that nobody makes a mistake that is going to deprive the defendant of a fair case or a fair process. And we all want to make sure it's done properly. So in most courts, where you have a really good judge and a really good lawyer on either side of the aisle, um, we're, we're watching out for other people's mistakes so that doesn't happen. I think some members of the public would have a perception that the prosecutors are just, you know, out to get the defendant. They want jail time. You know, they want the max. You know, that expression, throw the book at them. Um, but it sounds like that's not really the case. I think the vast majority of prosecutors, that is not the case. Um, there are always going to be some lawyers on either side that are going to be more aggressive, perhaps more close-minded, um, perhaps more, um, I don't know what the word would be. It's not a negative word, but more sort of vertical. They, they can't see beyond the, the uh, outline that they've created for their case. And in criminal cases, I think that's crucial because the, the general public may not realize that it is not the prosecutor's job to get a conviction. And most people think it is. The prosecutor takes an oath to see that justice is done. So in a case where the prosecutor believes they have sufficient evidence to get a conviction, but they believe in their discretion that it's not going to serve the interest of justice to prosecute, they don't prosecute, and they shouldn't prosecute. By the same token, even if they think the defendant is a bad person or committed a bad crime, but they know they don't have the evidence to support that theory, they have an obligation not to prosecute. They take an oath to see that justice is done. And it is not just to prosecute a case where you know you can't win. And it is not just to prosecute a case where you know you shouldn't. 
Well, let me ask you this, and I will fully admit that my knowledge of this topic really comes largely from Law and Order. <laughs> <laughs> so, my next question is going to be how how realistic is that show? But what if you have enough evidence? But could there be other reasons why you don't pursue it? Absolutely, absolutely. There are there are vehicles in the law. For example, if a, a case is Technically, uh, there's evidence of a crime or an offense, but it is nonetheless so minor, it's not really what the law was intending to protect or, or prosecute. A defense attorney can file an application to the assignment judge um, under the de minimis laws seeking a dismissal. Um, but prosecutors are people, just like anybody else, and there are going to be times where people make mistakes that are not criminal. They may technically fall within the elements of a statute, but it is up to the prosecutor to exercise his or her good judgment to decide whether this is someone who the law was intending to, for prosecution or not. Well, the typical law and order situation that I'll see is, let's say a dad kills a pedophile that sexually abused his daughter. And the prosecutors have this dialogue about, well, did he really do something wrong? You know, I mean, I'm minimizing it. I'm, I'm oversimplifying it. So I wonder, your values have to come into play. Like your personal values have to come into play. Absolutely. And this is a good one because my response to questions like that has evolved over the years, um, both as an attorney and as a mom. I'm the mother of two young girls. They're one and three years old. So um, the way I see these kinds of cases has shifted. And I represent um, people who are accused of doing criminal acts to young children. So these are complicated, difficult cases on so many levels. But I think to answer your question honestly, we have to first go back to why anybody would ever defend someone who did a horrific crime, even if you believed your client was guilty. It's because the system requires it. It demands it. A criminal justice system doesn't work unless you have an equally matched defense attorney with an equally matched prosecutor. Obviously, the system is designed to result in punishment for someone who is guilty. But before we get to the punishment part, they need representation. They need um, adequate and competent representation. And the state is um, fortunate to have tremendous resources. And the average criminal defense attorney does not, despite what the movies and film yeah. may make it seem like. They're, they're mostly on their own um, with a very small staff and limited resources. Yeah, not they're not all rich, right? <laughs> like people think. That's correct. But um, to get to the answer of your question, I believe in our justice system and even though I believe in my clients, I believe in the justice system more, and that's why I do this work. Because if people like me didn't do it, we'd all be suffering as a result. Now, the system is not based on the premise of an eye for an eye. If you steal from me, I don't get to steal from you. And if you hurt a child, you may be deserving of what you described. You may be deserving of the worst possible punishment, but it is not up to the victim or the victim's parents to make that call or to carry out that punishment. The system has to work, and the person who is guilty of committing that crime has to go through that process and be punished for it at the end of the process. It's not permissible, it's not okay for anybody to do it. Now that said, as a mom, yeah. if you touch one hair on my child's head, I'm coming for you. But the law doesn't allow that. So yeah. it is human nature to want to say an eye for an eye in an instance like that. But really, it's not right. And it doesn't fit within the framework of our system. Well, I was going to ask you, what would you tell people who say, how can you defend those people? But you just answered it. And much more eloquently than I have ever attempted to answer it in the past. But I, you, you touched on something really important at the crux of that, is that it affects all of us if that person doesn't get due process. That's right. That's absolutely right. In the most extreme example, when we have a case where we 
have so much evidence. There's so much pointing towards a defendant's guilt. It's in that case that the police conduct, the prosecutor's conduct, the judge's conduct has to be true to the letter of the law. The process has to work perfectly in those cases. Because when we allow a member of the bar, the bench, or law enforcement to kind of break the rule a little or bend it a little, because we know he must be guilty or she must have done it, then we're basically giving them a free pass to do it in any instance. And if there isn't a defense bar, if there isn't a defense attorney who's making sure that the police aren't violating our Fourth Amendment right to be free from illegal search and seizure, and that we are getting our constitutional right to compulsory process, then what's to stop law enforcement or any member um, of the state from coming into your car or coming into your house just because they think you did it. They think they can prove it. Yes. And it's such a slippery slope. They it is. We need to do this. Defense attorneys need to do this job to perfect, protect us all. Well, what's tricky about it is where would you draw the line, right? And who would decide that? So if, if people are allowed to engage in this sort of vigilanteism and attack a pedophile, because I think most of us would say pedophiles are sort of, you know, universally accepted as objectionable. If it's something else, where do we draw the line and say, well, you can do that, but you can't do that? Do you know what I mean? Of course. You can't do it. You cannot take the law into your own hands and seek the justice that you you believe the person deserves. You may very well be right, and that person may deserve more than what you're going to do, but it's not your right. The government, the laws do not allow you, or any individual, to take their, the law into their own hands. And they should be punished for it, notwithstanding the horrific crimes that they've suffered. Um, so if a parent goes after someone who's hurt their child, they may feel inherently justified, but they should be prosecuted for it because there's no way to draw that line that you're talking about yeah. if we allow one person to do it. Something else I have heard when this topic comes up is if, with specifically with regard to illegal search and seizure, well, if they're not doing anything wrong, then they don't have anything to worry about. I'm sure you've heard that. That's right. And I've heard, I mean, you may know that in uh, criminal cases we get discovery, and oftentimes now we have body cameras and dashboard cameras and poll cameras, and we get to hear a lot of what's said between law enforcement and our clients. And it's not uncommon to hear a police officer say something like that. Well, if you don't have anything in there, why would you object to me searching the car? And well, I, even as a defense attorney, I'm not sure I could do this, but you know, what I, the, the law says you can say to the officer, respectfully, that's my right. Yeah. Unless you have a reasonable basis to believe that there's some sort of illegal criminal conduct or contraband in the car, you, you don't get to go into someone's car. We have reasonable expectations of privacy even when we leave our home. So um, we have our basic presumption of innocence, right? We, we have the right to remain silent. We have the right not to incriminate ourselves. And we don't have to help the police gather evidence against us, whether we are responsible for whatever it is they think that you're doing or not doing. Yes. Whether you did it or not. That's right. I mean, look, the truth is, if you are completely innocent and the police have made a mistake, it might speed things up for you to say, sure, come, do whatever you want. But you don't have to. You can say, no, re respectfully, um, please come back with a warrant. And if they don't have the legal basis to come into your home or into your car or wherever, then they're not going to. They're not going to get in there. Well, then you, there are people that believe that a lot of cops are dirty and, you know, that that could backfire on them. If they, think, if they have the thinking, if I just cooperate because I know I didn't do anything wrong, it could backfire on me if I'm dealing with law enforcement personnel that are, you know, less than honorable. I am 100% vehemently opposed to that sentiment that law enforcement are dirty. I think by far and away the vast majority of people who go into law enforcement are, are 
good, truthful, decent people. They're heroes. They put their lives on the line at risk. They do the job that I know I couldn't do. Um, and they do it in some of the most dangerous parts of this country. Um, I think in any field, you're going to have a couple bad apples. It's going to be the case. And it's not fair to judge the entire group of law enforcement based on a couple of people who are bad apples. And it makes for great headlines. It sells advertising time on TV shows. And I understand, I don't like it, but I understand why there is such a mis conception of law enforcement officers. The same is true for defense attorneys. True, yeah. A lot of people think a criminal defense attorney must be a liar, must be a spin doctor, must be shady. And um, divorce lawyers, too. That's true. <laughs> that's right. But of course, it's not true. It's just not true. And until people find themselves, unfortunately, going through a divorce or being charged with an offense, it, the words you know, you have the right to remain silent. You have the right to a fair process. They don't really mean much until you're in that place. And all of a sudden, you know, people's eyes widen and they realize, you know, this is the right way to do it. This is the system that I didn't understand until I, until I had to. Yeah, I think we all appreciate how important that is when it's actually happening to us and it's more relevant. So, wow, that was a lot of good stuff you covered in a short time. Oh, thank you. <laughs> okay. These are deep we're diving deep into this. We are. We are. These are, and I'm really interested to hear your perspective, having not just having watched Law and Order, you know, <laughs> having actually been involved in these kinds of things. And I do have to ask. It might seem like a silly question, but do you watch Law and Order? And how realistic or unrealistic is it? I love Law and Order. <laughs> I am obsessed with Law and Order. I still watch it. I have it recording on my DVR. And if I somehow have a couple of hours to myself on a weekend, I'll be watching it on one of the other networks that repeat them from years ago. I love it. It's a, it's a fun show. It's entertaining. There are a lot of parts of it that ring true to state-type, street-level criminal defense work. You know, a lot of it is, it's just so fast. It's so clean and everything yeah. is tied up so neatly with a bow at the end of every episode, which I wish was true in real life, but I think that's the hardest part of the show to equate to real life. Our jobs would be a lot easier if it was like that too. Yes. <laughs> okay, so you were at the prosecutor's office for two years and you really loved it. And then you said an opportunity presented itself for you to have your own practice. So can you talk to me about that? Sure. Um, a successful um, businessman had a um, very large commercial litigation matter. And um, I knew this gentleman through personal family and social background. We, we, we'd known each other for a long time. And he'd known my family. And he was an elderly gentleman who was um, looking to pursue a multi-district federal litigation matter that was worth hundreds of millions, if not more, um, if he was successful. And he asked that I leave my job and act as the point person to put together a team to help him pursue his claims. And it was a very uh, exciting but terrifying time and I spent quite some time talking to people that I trusted um, their judgment about my career about the practice I had always planned to open a firm but I didn't anticipate doing it at the age of 29 um, you were still a young attorney very young very very young and um, I decided uh, that this was something I had to do I really knew that I would regret it if I didn't take the opportunity. And enough people I trusted said, this is not um, a fantasy, you know, it's not, a, um, it's not some trip to the moon you're talking about. I had gotten lawyers from one of the finest firms in New Jersey, a big firm that were on board, signed up, ready to go, and I would be the client liaison. Um, I wouldn't say that I was gonna be managing the case, but I was, the plan was that I would be communicating with the client in a way that he felt that he could trust in such a big case. And I went to my boss, and Ted Romanko, who I consider a mentor and so lucky to call a friend, and I told him, this is what's happening. And he said, take it, take this shot, because if you don't, you'll regret it, 
And if it doesn't work out or you don't like it, your job is always going to be available to you here. And with that kind of support, it sort of pushed me yeah. in the right direction. And um, I took that big leap of faith and never looked back. So you started your firm and you already had one client, right? Well, that's the interesting thing. Despite all of this work and preparation and thought process, uh, the client signed the retainer agreement for my firm, for the other firm, wrote big, big checks, money I'd never seen at that point in my life, and um, then decided he didn't want to pursue it. No. Yes. What? This is like a movie. <laughs> well, I think it's so far fetched that it almost wouldn't seem true, uh, except it was true. So I, I had been at that time living in my parents' house to to, to um, survive on a prosecutor's salary after putting myself through law school. And now I'm opening up this firm with a small office in downtown Newark and getting all the insurances and all the supplies and maxed out my credit cards and um, was hoping that this case might be the case that I would retire with um, at a young age. Yeah. And uh, the client decided that he had no children he had amassed a great fortune already, and that the additional tremendous sums of money that he almost certainly could have obtained at the end of the litigation wasn't worth the energy and the stress. And he basically said, what else am I going to do with more money? I have no one to leave it to. He didn't have children to leave it to, and he'd rather spend the rest of his life in a more peaceful place with a more positive energy. So that was... Um, I would have been like, you can give me some since I quit my job for you. <laughs> yeah, I did not say that. I probably should have. But um, Did it occur to you to just go back to the prosecutor's office? You know, you may not believe it, but no, it didn't. It never occurred to me to go back with my tail between my legs and say it failed. And, and at that point, it didn't feel like it had failed. I just thought, okay, what's next? And I thought, well, I have fortunately a lot of friends from law school and from big firm and from the prosecutor's office, and I've met all these people. Let me just let them know what I'm doing. Let them know that I have a real office that was really cool in a great building right across the street from the courthouse in Newark. Um, and I threw a party. My brother catered it. He's a chef. And uh, my family brought their friends. and. I sent out hundreds of invitations, and basically anybody I'd ever met, I had said, come to my party, my opening party. And I think we had something like 150 people wow, show up. Wow, like a wedding. Yeah, it was, it was great. It was so wonderful. And um, I have these incredible friends that any case that came in their firm couldn't take, they'd say, send it to Remy, send it to Remy. And I did all kinds of work at the beginning all kinds of civil cases, criminal cases, municipal cases. And um, if it wasn't for my friends in the law sending me those cases the first one to three years, I never would have survived. And then there's a whole other subset of friends that helped me figure out how to do the work. So Yeah, I was just going to ask you that. Okay, so how did you figure out how to do those? It was, it was a lot of time, a lot of late nights. I worked so hard. And I loved it, though. It, was never, it never felt like a sacrifice. I never felt like I was giving up anything. Um, and I will be forever indebted to my friends that supported me in opening the firm, that supported me with sending clients, and then the, the, the select few who know who they are who really taught me how to do it. And it's why I, uh, I help out other lawyers when ever I get the chance. It makes me feel so good in a way of giving back the way that people gave to me when I started. Yeah, you remember what it was like when you were starting. I can't help but feel like in some way that that was just supposed to happen, right? Just to get you to start your firm. I don't know. I believe in, some people are like, oh, that's all woo-woo, but I kind of believe in the universe just giving you what you need when you need it. I, I completely agree. Uh, somebody once told me that things happen as they should. And I think, yes, that's what happened here. And I'm incredibly lucky. Lots of people work hard. Lots of pe people do everything right, and they don't have the support or the success uh, to keep a business going, especially a small law firm. And here it is. We're going to celebrate 15 years in June 
I am incredibly lucky and so forever grateful to my, my colleagues and, and my clients. Well, I also hear that having a, a feeling of gratitude like that all the time is, is it, it sort of goes in tune with the universe, right? Like, I'm not saying this very eloquently, but having gratitude because you could have looked at that very differently. You could have been like, woe is me. I can't believe this jerk did this. And, you know, what am I going to do now? And felt sorry for yourself. But you didn't do that. No, I didn't do that. Don't get me wrong. I'm pretty sure I never spoke to that gentleman again. <laughs> um, and uh, I'm pretty sure my father would not have welcomed him back into our home at that point uh, because it did feel like a betrayal. Yeah. Um, but... But him deciding not to go forward was the greatest thing that happened to my career because practicing criminal defense has been one of the greatest privileges of my, not just my career, but of my life because I've had the opportunity to meet some incredible people and help people and families that really needed it. And I'd like to think that I really make a difference. And that's why I work hard and that's why I keep doing this. Well, I love your positive energy. Thank it's you. Great. And so you started your own practice. You're basically doing whatever walks in the door. At some point, based upon your practice now, you were able to limit it to criminal defense work, right? How That's long, right. How long did it take you to be able to do that? I think it was about three years. Um, about three years, I stopped taking um, civil cases. And it was really because I was running out of time. Um, I was fortunate to be trying criminal cases and I was learning about how to manage a business and build a business and one of the things that I learned quickly was that if you can refer business to lawyers who do that particular work that's different than your own they're going to refer business to you and it was important to me to develop um, a, a reputation or a, a a network that recognized me as a lawyer that handled criminal cases because that's what I wanted to do and I was I was very lucky that I got to do it so looking back on things if to the younger young ish or you know anybody who's starting their own firm what are some tips that you would give them when they're putting themselves out there um, for me that first party I threw to tell people where I was and what I was doing was the beginning and I didn't even realize I was doing it I, I listen to podcasts now from the Harvard Business Review, and I listen to television programs, and I've read books about building a business, what they don't teach you at Harvard Business School, all of this, and it's all really the same thing. It's stunning to me, despite the education and the, it's really all the same thing. You have to build relationships that are based on trust, either personal relationships, people know you and trust you, or professional people know that you do good work and they can trust that the clients they send to you aren't going to be disappointed. And if you can develop relationships like that and stay present in people's minds, being memorable, those are the, the two most important things to building, I think, a network of business. Because when that call comes in, whatever kind of law you're doing, um, whether it's my friend's friend just got arrested for marijuana, you want to be the first name, if you're a defense attorney, in that person's mind. Ah, Remy's the one. Or if it's divorce, my best friend's brother-in-law is getting divorced. Christina is the only person to go to. And it can be done in any way that feels natural and true to you. If you try to be a different kind of person to network, it will fall flat. And people won't get a real sense of who you are. And there are so many people, and there are so many different personalities. You will find your place. You will find your group. You just need to be out there being genuine and sincere and being the best at what you do. And people won't forget you. I feel so lucky to do the work that I do. There isn't a day where I walk into a courthouse and see the, the pews and the, the seats for the jury and the judge, and I don't think, I cannot believe they let me do this. I cannot believe I get to do this. So. You know, I, I plan on doing this for a long time, but if that ever goes away, I'll, I'll pack it up. <laughs> that's great. Not too many people can really say that about their jobs. And that's, that's a sad thing. Yeah, 
So I want to get into some things that are going on in our culture today. I wanted to ask you what, if, well, have you been following the Harvey Weinstein of trial? I mean, it's kind of hard to not, right? But as a criminal defense attorney, what are your impressions of that? Well, the Harvey Weinstein case is, it's tremendous. It's remarkable on so many different levels. Ronan Farrow sort of blew the lid on the most powerful man in Hollywood and probably more powerful than even what we know um, and at first, nobody believed it, right? Or nobody wanted to believe it, or nobody could believe it. And and here we are, a couple years later. He's probably going to go to state prison for 20 years, um, having been convicted of rape. And I know some of the attorneys that are on the defense team, amazing lawyers, incredible defense attorneys, and they did an outstanding job. They did their jobs well. Um, and most people, myself included, would say, in this case, the process worked. The system worked. He got a truly thorough, fair trial. He got the best defense probably anybody could get um, by lawyers who did a great job. And the jury spent, I think it was five days, deliberating and asking questions and reviewing the judge's instructions on the law and the evidence that they heard, and they made their decision. You know, due process, fair trial, is what our system equates with justice. And that's what happened here. Do you think that juries are trustworthy? Can we expect them to really do what they're supposed to do? Because I know there's a lot of criticism that a lot of jurors are unsophisticated, that they don't appreciate the gravity of the decision they have to make. I don't have any opinion about that. I'm just wondering what you think. I think you're right about the public opinion of jurors. I think it's wrong. I have picked several juries, and in that process, I'm interacting or observing interactions between the juror and the judge with hundreds, if not thousands, of people. There are people from all walks of life, smart, skilled, successful, um, and everything in between. And you know, the lawyers endeavor through that selection process to find the jurors that we believe are going to listen, who are going to participate, who are going to take the oath that they take as jurors seriously, who are going to review the case in a way that we hope is favorable to our side, but will do it, will do the job. And I, I maybe uh, the layperson will disagree, but as a lawyer who does this work, I tell you these jurors take it very, very seriously. Even if they didn't think they would before they are sitting there, yes. the process instills a sense of importance in their roles as juror because they are incredibly responsible for really important decisions. And I don't think that's lost on jurors. Do you have any opinion about would this Harvey Weinstein trial have happened like 20 years ago? No, absolutely not. I don't think so. I. I believe, sadly, that the legal profession and by obvious extension our criminal justice system is so far behind in gender equality issues in the workforce, in the home front, in every way. Um, and it, And it's very sad. I mean, we are behind almost every other industry. I have friends who work in uh, finance, let's say, on Wall Street. And the amount of time and money and energy that's put into their businesses, their companies, to make sure that they have a diverse group of people working there and equal pay for men and women, it's remarkable and it's such a positive thing. We don't yet see that in the law. And I can't answer the question that's coming, why is the legal yeah. profession so far behind? You would like to think that we'd be ahead of the curve, but to put it bluntly, it's still very much an old boys club, and they all look the same. Did you read Ronan Farrow's book, Catching, was it Catch and Kill? I have not read it, but um, that's not because I don't want to read it. It's because I have two little kids, as I said, <laughs> and I have no time. That's okay. No, I was curious if you, I haven't read it either, but I really do want to read it because to, it's fascinating to me that, you know, I really do feel like things pop up in our culture 
when they need to, when there's a need or a calling for it. And I feel like we're at a point now with the hashtag Me Too movement, which isn't new. It's been sort of revived. And I, I don't know, I feel like this is all sort of coming to a head right now because it really needs to. There needs to be more attention on it. I hope you're right. I'd like to believe you're right. Um, I can tell you as recently as last week, a prosecutor told me to go sit in the front row and look pretty. I don't have as much faith that things are moving as uh, progressively and quickly as we'd like, but it is a step in the right direction. Can I ask you how old was that person, like roughly? Not that old. Okay, because I've always had this hope that, you know, once I call them the dinosaurs, once the dinosaurs sort of, you know, fade out, that the newer generation will have been trained. But it doesn't seem like that's really happening. Look, for many years, I was asked publicly and privately, is it hard to do your job as a woman in a courtroom in a system filled with older white men? And I said, it's hard to do this job no matter what you look like. Trial work is trial work. Defense work is defense work. And, and I still say that. And I never will complain about being a woman in this profession. I feel proud of it. And in many instances, I think it is it can be turned to become an advantage um, to the, for the client it be by having a woman, a skilled lawyer, but also a woman. But there are going to be, I mean, any female lawyer who does this work will tell you, on a regular basis, there are still people of all different ages, people young enough to know better, old enough to know better, who are still behaving in ways that if we were in a different industry, they would get fired. Because it's not just the words that they say, but it's the way that they say it, the dismissive nature, the you know, the, the suggestion and innuendo that women have different kind of influence over witnesses, and it's, it's unfortunate, but it is still very much a reality um, in the legal profession. Do you have any opinion about why that persists? That's a great question. Because I'm trying to figure it out, so I, I just want to see if you have any ideas. I don't think I can answer that question based in anything other than pure speculation, but because they get away with it. Mm. I mean, there's, they can and they do get away with it. Most people, I would never report that complaint that I just made about what a prosecutor said to me because it won't help my client and it won't help resolve my client's case. And that's where my focus is, not on my feelings, not on the prosecutor's um, poor behavior, but on doing the job for the client. And as long as my focus remains on my client, I'm not going to hold that person accountable. And that's, they can get away with it. You raise a very good point. And something even in addition to that, forget about the client for a minute, I can't help but feel like the attitude would be like, Remy, aren't you overreacting? Just get over it. That would be the attitude, for sure. I won't bore you with the details of that one incident. Uh, there are many incidents I could tell you about, but people know when they're in, in, in an interaction with a person when it is a joke, yeah. when it is intended to be a compliment. But when someone's head is face down writing on a piece of paper and ghosted in the front row and look pretty, I'm sure the judge will get to your case, that's never going to be interpreted as a pleasant, kind remark if the remark is it's condescending you look really beautiful today just have yeah. a seat in the courtroom and we'll get to that i would say thank you what a nice guy right but we're 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 people with common sense we know when the comment or the statement is intended to be uh, condescending or patronizing um, and when it's meant to be a compliment so you said that you have two girls one and three do you think that things will be better when they're 20 or 30 or 40? Yes, absolutely. I still think that it's going to be, uh, we still have a long road ahead to get to a place that we can say people are equally respectful of each other. Um, 
but I am confident we are getting there. Good. Well, I'm glad to hear that. And I think we are making improvements very slowly, very slowly. And it's it's um, disconcerting to hear that that you are, just experienced that recently. And there's so many examples of it. Sadly, yes. Yes. Well, I do want to ask you also, in the time that you've been working in the criminal justice system, have are there trends that you've seen, you know, maybe in the way that sex crimes are prosecuted especially in more recent years? Yes, I think that, um, you know, there have been changes in the law. There have been victims' bill, a victim's bill of rights. Prosecutors are now obligated to confer with victims of sex crimes before resolving cases. And the layperson may not know that the victim is just a witness in the case. They don't have standing to um, make requests of the court or of the defense um, and or even to decide if it's prosecuted. That's right. right. That's right. But now prosecutors are under an obligation to confer with prose- with their victims. And, you know, some prosecutors will not prosecute or will prosecute based on a victim's wishes. And that I think that's more and more the trend. I think what we hear a lot, and this is based upon television, is well the victim won't she refuses to process to uh testify so we can't prosecute is that a real thing it is yes okay sadly i mean the what we know about domestic violence is that it occurs time and time again an abuser will continue to abuse his or her victim and with each sort of spin of the wheel they call it domestic violence cycle or wheel it gets worse So there's the tension building phase, there's the acute battering or the actual incident, and then what they call the hearts and flowers phase. And each time that wheel goes around, the abuse gets worse. And at some point, a victim may reach out for help. Or in many cases, people, neighbors, coworkers, can hear or see something happening and they'll report it. And then law enforcement wants to pursue it. But if the victim isn't going to testify, usually her testimony testimony or his testimony is necessary to make the case and a lot of people don't want to force a victim to come in and testify when they don't want to it's almost like re-victimizing that person so it's it's good that we see more support more resources for victims so that people with um, financial limitations can leave people who need representation can get free lawyers people who need the support to break free of the abuse can get that and that will typically empower them so that they will participate in the criminal prosecution and hopefully put an end to it well i'm glad to hear that we're being more sensitive to the victims what about in terms of aggressively prosecuting or sentencing what, what about the penalties that we impose on people who commit sex crimes? Because, correct me if I'm wrong, it seems to me that drug offenders are, are subject to greater penalties than people who commit sex crimes. I think that used to be the case. Um, and I'll speak for New Jersey. While we do have some very harsh penalties for um, just drug distribution cases where people have tremendous amounts of drugs and uh, lengthy prior criminal history, the vast majority of these cases can be resolved, like certainly simple possession can be resolved without prison time. Um, But the laws have evolved in sex crimes and the penalties are extremely severe. Um, First degree sex crimes can expose a defendant to 25 years to life in prison, depending on the age of the victim. Um, And if you reject a plea uh, after a certain point in a case, the state can't offer and the judge can't give below 15 years. Um, It becomes a really difficult case to, to, to handle on both sides because the penalties are so severe. And there's Megan's Law, and there is what we call parole supervision for life. So even if individuals um, aren't getting life sentences, when they finally get out of prison, they are going to be under a form of very strict supervision from state law enforcement for the rest of their lives. So the penalties in New Jersey are not, are not weak for sex crimes. They're very tough 
Well, I'm glad to hear that because I think what I probably see in the news because I don't do this for a living. I see the examples in the news where someone committed some horrendous sex crime, like a rape or something, and got probation or, you know, got something ridiculous. Um, I know this wasn't in New Jersey, but I don't know if you remember the Stanford student, I think it was, who was on the swim team, and he sexually assaulted that girl by the dumpster who was intoxicated and passed out and the judge made some comment that you know he wasn't going to ruin his future over this this one thing do you remember that case yes i do i do and i think the most important takeaway from that is that it got national attention because the judge was so ignorant on the topic and so protecting of a rapist and I think the fact that everybody knows about it is a testament to how society's views on these cases and the way they're treated has changed. Now, another thing that probably lay people don't realize is that a lot of these cases are very complicated. Um, it's easy to write a, a, a column or a blog or give a two-minute um, television story on a case that will never capture the, the details and um, the nuances of these kinds of cases. And if you've ever handled one of them, you know exactly what I'm talking about. If you've ever been involved somehow, directly or indirectly, you know what I'm talking about. And people are wrongfully accused of sex crimes all the time, all yeah. the time. And I will tell you that I'm not sure whether it's worse to be falsely accused of a sex crime or a homicide, because in today's day and age, I think it's a sex crime. It's when, and people who are falsely accused of these kinds of crimes will almost never be able to escape the stigma associated with the case, no matter what happens with it. And that is tragic. Yeah, I, I would tend to agree with that. This is really interesting discussion, and I appreciate the questions, because you're really bringing to the forefront you know, some complicated issues with criminal law that most people don't want to touch. Yeah, and a lot of times they don't have clean answers. And sometimes people wouldn't want to give their answers into a microphone because, you know, it's politically charged. You know, there's always going to be somebody who ferociously disagrees with you, right? That's right. Um, but to do your job as a lawyer, you have, to, you have to be able to take a stand. You have to have an opinion because, you know, that's... You have to understand what you're doing and why you're doing it if you're going to do it at the highest level for clients. And if a client's freedom is on the line, you better be able to do it at the highest level, in my yeah. opinion. I think what still bothers me is that it's still so difficult for women to come. Well, men, too, because we know men are victims of sexual assault. But women are still so afraid to come forward when they've been victimized. And that upsets me so much. What do you think needs to happen for women to feel more comfortable doing that. I know I'm, it's like I'm asking you to cure cancer right now, but. <laughs> I think we have to continue doing what we're doing. I don't think it's right to just automatically believe everything. I, think, I agree. I think that that does a disservice to the system because what will happen is we'll see such a swing and the pendulum will have swung so far to one side that you know it, it will bounce back and forth. But we have to be thoughtful and we have to be trusting and we have to be thorough in our evaluations of these cases from a law enforcement perspective. If I were a prosecutor, I would believe the victim as he or she is talking to me, unless there was a reason not to. And, and that's, I think, the difference today. Most people would agree with that statement. A prosecutor will believe the victim instead of questioning and doubting. But if somewhere in the investigation it appears that you have a credibility issue or you have a factual issue or something comes up that causes you to ask more questions, you need to do that. Because it's one thing to talk about it out of a courtroom. It's another thing when you're dealing with real people and lives and... And consequences. That's right. What about these kinds of things, like the emphasis? And I don't even know if this really still is still happening largely, and maybe you can comment on that, but things like, well, what was she wearing? Why is that even relevant in 2020? That's right. 
I mean, unless the criminal code is making it some sort of an affirmative defense because the victim was wearing something suggestive, which is absurd. Um, I read so many social media posts and articles after the Harvey Weinstein verdict, and one struck me so profoundly, and that is nobody asked Harvey Weinstein what he was wearing. I don't remember who posted it, but I attributed that, that person's post in mine. And, um, you know, it's such an obvious point. Unless it matters what the abuser or perpetrator is wearing, it shouldn't matter what the victim is wearing. Well, from what I've heard, there were times Harvey was wearing nothing. <laughs> so the, how could that not be relevant? It must have been. I'm going to refrain from <laughs> commenting on Harvey Weinstein being naked. <laughs> yeah, that's not something I want to think about either. It's important to note, though, on that case, I think I would be doing a disservice to so many people if we didn't, and I think you've already said it, but I want to say it myself, is that the people that have come forward in, the light, in light of the great power and force that Harvey Weinstein had, I know, some, I know one of the, the first reporters, personally, we've been friends for years, and um, she is an incredible person. And I wished I had known that this had happened when it happened, because I would have wanted to be there for her. But to see how powerful her voice is, and all of them, I mean, what they've been through, and we owe, the society owes a debt of gratitude to the people who are speaking up, speaking truth to power, putting their personal history out there for the world to see. I, I give them an in incredible amount of credit and I respect them and I thank them as a lawyer in the criminal profession. I do have to ask you, mostly for my own personal curiosity, you were on Fox News. How did that happen? Oh, it's so, it's, uh, thank you for asking. Um, yes, I've been on Fox News. I've been on Fox Business, CNN, pretty much all the major news networks. I've been fortunate to have appeared. Um, and I'll tell you the same answer I tell everybody. Great luck. Really great luck. Um, I was just opening my firm in the first couple of years. I had a, a handful of high-profile cases that uh, caused media outlets to contact me at my firm about my own cases, asking for comment. And um, I was walking out of the courtroom and on the steps of the courthouse, and there were a bunch of microphones that were thrust in my face. It was the only time in my career that ever happened. It was a, an arraignment for a high-profile case. And there were three old white men and me. And so I guess I stood out um, with my curly hair and my, you know, my skirt suit, and they all put the, cam the camera and the microphone in my face, and I started talking, and I have no idea what I said. I probably said something brilliant like, uh, uh, uh. <laughs> but they really caught you off guard. Nonetheless, the studio asked me to come in and talk about the case that following day, and, you know, they whooshed me in, and they put all this makeup, and they teased my hair up. They told me to wear a um, fitted outfit, hmm. and I did, and when it was done, there's a little earpiece where I'm talking. You know, I was talking to a, a screen. I wasn't in a room with anybody, just a cameraman. But when it was done, the producer, I guess, in my ear said, you know, Rennie, you weren't bad. I said, oh, well, well, well that's good. Thank you. <laughs> you didn't sound bad. Thank you. Thank you so much. And you know what? You don't look too bad either. I was like, <laughs> okay. Now I don't know what's happening. And she said, this is a woman. She said, would you like to come back and do it again? Nice. Uh, okay. I'm pretty sure that's a verbatim description of the conversation. And then I got the great privilege of appearing on so many great shows. I met so many brilliant people, interesting people in the green rooms. And for over 10 years, I was regularly appearing on all these networks and um, one of my good friends had a show called Red Eye with Greg Gutfeld, and Bill Schultz and I uh, known each other since we were in college, and I got to be on that show, which has a tremendous loyal fo fan following. It doesn't exist anymore, but people still talk about it. So it was a great way as a um, young lawyer just starting out my own firm to truly stand out, be memorable, be present in people's minds, and um, you know, it was the best form of advertising. It was a whole lot of fun. And um, occasionally I still do it when I have the time. I'm grateful that they still ask. Um, but with a, a one-year-old and a three-year-old, 
it's, uh, it's going to have to be a really important uh, story for me to take time away from my girls or my practice. Because did, did you get a lot, a lot of business from it? Would you have people call and say, I saw you on Fox News? Yes, but that's usually where it ended. Oh. <laughs> They're like, I have no money, though. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I didn't get any um, business directly as a result of appearing on TV. But that's surprising. It is like anything else in business. The relationships yeah. I made with the, the, the I, won't, I won't name them, but famous people who are on that host their own shows would call me up and say, my brother's friend needs an attorney in New Jersey. And, you know, the relationships yeah. I built with the people in front and behind the camera helped build the business. Yeah, absolutely. What's the best business advice, advice that you ever got? Hire the best people to help you with the finances. Mm, that is good advice. You do have to pay attention to that. What's the best life advice you ever got? Be true to yourself. Be genuine in everything you do, and you'll be the best at it. What person do you most admire and why? Oh, that's tough. It's a tie. I'm going to say both my parents. My mom and my dad, and uh, we don't have enough time to go into it. My father passed away a couple years ago, and I'm I sorry. gave his thank you. I gave his eulogy, and it was more of a biography. And he led such a remarkable life. And I, our family wouldn't be what it is. I wouldn't be who I am, but for both of my parents, I was um, very, very fortunate. My mom is tremendous working woman, business owner, um, incredible people, and I'm very lucky to have been born to this family. What would you tell your 20-year-old self? Be more confident. Sounds like you were confident. You know that saying, you fake it till you make it? Yeah. Um, I think people would have seen an appearance that uh, they would have believed was confidence. But I was terrified. Yeah. <laughs> but be more confident and sure of yourself. If you are working hard and prepared, you have to have faith in yourself. We could probably say that to our 40-year-old selves, too, <laughs> right? I mean, it's different, but there are times, I think. Yeah. And what would you tell other women who are thinking of starting their own firm, but they're afraid? A healthy fear will help motivate your firm's success. Don't walk away because you're afraid. Don't let the fear cripple you. Figure out why you want to open your firm and then go for it. Excellent advice. Thank you, Remy. Thank you so much. This has been a lot of fun.